would you like to know? Well, you should listen. Zoom. Cron. Week in review. Listen closely. Zoom. Cron. It's gonna help you. Then think for yourself. What the hell happens? I'm gonna tell you. From my in perspective. In the Zoom Cron. In Zoom Cron. Week, week in, in review. review. Right now. Here's an independent journalist, Travis. William, William Skink Matier. Hello and welcome to the Week in Review. I'm your host, Travis William Skink Matier. And like always, we got all kinds of stuff to review for this week of the 17th through the 21st. So as soon as I get my computer unlocked, here we go. We can start taking a look and see what kind of posts we have to discuss at zoomcron.com. That's the blog where I post all of my material Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. Generally is when you can find new content. And let's see, what did we start off with this week? Oh, of course, we started off with a major, major post on Monday, the 17th. It was a post I was working on the previous week, starting the previous Wednesday when I biked out to the Kim Williams Trail after hearing comments and uh, actually i'm sorry the comments from jill bonnie the executive director from the poverello center that were monday so the big city council meeting about urban camping the city council meeting that nothing really happened because council backed off of what they were going to do with the uh codifying the emergency ordinance for parks and rec um a lot of details in all of that which i have covered throughout the past couple weeks but wednesday is when i biked out to the kim williams trail in order to have some direct conversations with people camping out there. I wanted to hear for myself if there were things happening, um, drinking from the water, medical emergencies, and as it turns out, medical emergencies did seem to be happening. Not the kind, though, from drinking nasty water, more the kind from possibly smoking fentanyl-laced weed. So, is there someone handing out, selling, peddling, distributing cannabis, marijuana, laced with fentanyl? That is the question. The question also includes whether or not three people overdosed. I talked to one young man who said his friend is dead as a result of fentanyl-laced weed. He seemed pretty upset about it, seemed pretty genuine. We had some conversations about the authorities and their lack of trust in reporting this stuff. And as I talked, as I tend to do with my big flipping mouth, one of the things I mentioned was cleaning up the meth shack and how proud I was of the personal cost I invested in the removal of the meth shack. And as I discussed the meth shack, wouldn't you know, they, the people I was talking to, were very familiar with Todd Spence, the builder of the meth shack um, from my sources, and were not very happy because they really targeted him. Target is not really the word. They identified him as the individual they suspected of being, I don't know, angel of death? <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so I spent a lot of time working on Monday's post because I was making phone calls, and some of those phone calls 
I didn't actually discuss publicly in the post, but one of them I did discuss was my conversation with the captain of the street crimes unit. Is he familiar with this claim of fentanyl-laced weed and the individual uh, this claim is being directed at? Why yes, but can they do anything? Why no? It seems like they can't do anything. Um, I even went to the location where this person is currently living. So a tent. I didn't specify the color of the tent. There's several tents still under the Russell Street Bridge. He is in one of them. I called 911. My source said that he had a bag of fentanyl on him at the time. And as I watched him exit the tent with law enforcement right in front of me, I was having a nice chat with the street cop. Nothing happened. And the cop was explaining to me why that was the case, why nothing would happen to that individual in that moment. I understood, of course, I wasn't going to put any pressure on the on the street cop. The guy was just responding, doing his job. I wanted the 911 call documented, just like I want my post documented. Um, as I send links to county commissioners, as I make more public comments to city council, giving them updates about my investigation into whether or not a person is peddling cannabis laced with fentanyl, resulting in at least one fatal overdose, but um, possibly three within the last couple of weeks out in the Kim Williams Trail area. So you can go to the post. It even includes a picture of street art. Pretty cool. And, of course, that mugshot of Todd uh, as he was arrested last September on the misdemeanor assault charge after he assaulted two MDT staff. Interesting thing, Todd continues harassing the Department of Transportation, um, and they actually employ private security at their building on Broadway because of Todd's persistent threats toward their staff. Crazy stuff here in Zoomtown. Moving on, the next post features a picture of a hyena at the end of it. Before the picture of the hyena, you have a picture of Jim Messina's face. Actually, a lot of pictures of Jim Messina's face, and for that, I'm sorry. No one really wants to see this guy's face. He looks like a young turtle that was just born and is sticking his head out, seeing what he can fuck up today. But, again, I seem to get ahead of myself very easily. Um, the post that I'm referencing is July 18th's post, titled, My Cautious and Cynical Take on the Mayoral Money Flap, semicolon. The hyenas are already barking at each other. That's, that's it. That's my assessment. The hyenas, they're coming out, and they're barking at each other. I got to sit next to one of the hyenas. His name is C.B. Pearson or something like that. Uh, he's a consultant, used to be, a, or consulted at one point for our former mayor, John Engen. I, I tried to talk to this guy about Martin Kidston and Democrats, and he, he was not very happy. He actually kind of shooed me away with his hand. It was somewhat rude. But he was there to make public comment, as was I. My public comment referenced the $125,000 donation from the National Realtors Group that seemed to try and hide this money. And this money is going to help Mike Nugent. Did Mike Nugent ask for this money? No. Tyler Gurnett, uh, Mike Nugent's treasurer or campaign treasurer guy, um, basically said, hey, we don't have any control whether or not these big entities give a bunch of money. But the money is definitely freaking some people out. Like former mayor Chemis, so Daniel Chemis, uh, had a big article, nice picture of him in the Missoulian. I, of course, take my cynicism and I apply it to Chemis. I apply it to Nugent and Messina, Jim Messina, who um, backed up um, Mike Nugent being a good candidate, even though this money is worrisome. For those of you that are not familiar with Jim Messina, he helped someone get reelected back in the day. It was 2012. The guy was Obama. And then, not happy with just that work of technological prowess, since, since Messina is known as a tech guru, he went across the pond, and he helped some Tories get elected, and eventually Brexit happened. So 
that's the dude. He he went to the University of Montana and he's palsies with Seth Seth Bodner's wife. And Seth Bodner is the president of the University of Montana at present. And so this is how the influence, especially from the Democratic side of the political spectrum, flexes in Zoomtown. So you can read all about it, including seeing a, a, a little clip of my public comment and Mr. Pearson's public comment. What's fun when you listen to Mr. Pearson is just how much nothing comes out of his mouth, and that nothing goes past the three-minute mark. My comment, of course, was full of substance and only took about a minute, 45 seconds for me to rattle off all my stuff. But Mr. Pearson, five minutes, a bunch of crap. And then if you read further down, Daniel Chemis, that former mayor I talked about who's sad, sad, sad that Mike Nugent has a six-figure sum floating around that could help him. Well, Daniel Chemis has written books. And so I took one of his books from my library, which is vast and kick-ass. And what did I do? I... I quoted from it. So I actually wrote the quote down with my fingers typing. And it's amazing how many words I typed and how little those words actually mean. You want to <clears throat> you want to hear what I'm talking about? Because when you when you hear it um, read out loud, it, it can be almost different. OK, so this is from Community and the Politics of Place. This is chapter eight from by ten, Daniel Chemist. Are you ready for this? <clears throat> A familiar maxim defines politics as the art of the possible. This definition is often invoked to end debates. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to take a sip of water real quick. Ah, This definition is often invoked to end debates by reminding someone that the proper realm of politics is not the ideal, but the real. The restricted realm of what is, in fact, possible, but... Referring to politics as the art of the possible might also be a way of invoking the possibilities inhering in the world, a way of drawing attention to what is not but could be. <clears throat> Robert Kennedy caught the essence of this way of viewing politics with his often used quote from George Bernard Shaw. You see things and you say why, but I dream things that never were and I say why not. Politics as the art of the possible, in other words, may mean that the glass is half empty, but it also may but it may also mean that the glass is half full. I do not want to argue that the second sense of the definition should be entirely substituted for the first, but simply that politics should be understood as the art of the possible in both of these senses. It is the tension between these two meanings which makes politics interesting, which makes it indeed a human enterprise. Oh man. All right, that ends the quote, and that probably ends your desire to continue listening to my voice if I read crap like that. Now, I'm, I'm sure as Daniel Chemis is writing that and then reading it back to himself in his mind, it, it's probably profound in his mind. When I read it and I hear it, all it does is make me want to sort of pinch myself to feel that I'm still here in my skin, alive. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's, that's, how I, that's how I feel about it. So you can go to... Uh, zoomcron.com if you want to read more about my cautious and cynical take on the mayoral flap. Next, this post is where um, I demonstrate my extreme humility. Are you ready? The title of this post, if I'm not a part of your homeless plan, then your homeless plan is to control, not solve. Now, yes, a little arrogant to say that that your entire homeless plan is conditional on my participation, like its authenticity is conditional on my participation, that may sound a little arrogant, but then again, you probably don't know me that well. I 
was quoted in the first 10-year plan to end homelessness and worked seven years at the homeless shelter and then three years at the aging services nonprofit. So a decade working very closely to this issue means that when I put the picture of Patrick Swayze saying nobody puts baby in the corner, it means I mean it is what it means. Um, so no one puts baby in the corner is what I'm trying to communicate at the start of this post, which you can check out at Zoomcron. July 19th is the date. And there's a lot of good information, but I really appreciate Mrs. Stitch. She's one of the commenters that oftentimes provides comments, and she provided a link that was fascinating to me. So if you want to go to the, the blog and read about how in Los Angeles, 120 new apartments for unhoused were created. They were move-in ready, but months later, most of them sit empty. If that is confusing to you, why that would be the case, you should read. Now, when I read the article, I got a little triggered because this kind of bureaucracy is very familiar to me. Um, a little bit different though, this is dealing with veterans, right? And so this is getting people into housing. Well, at the Valor House here in Missoula, Montana, you have the landlords, and that's plural. You have the Missoula Housing Authority, the VA, and then the Pavarella Center all sort of had their hand in decisions that would lead someone to be evicted. Imagine with that bureaucracy trying to get someone out of housing, someone who is, uh, let's say, maybe a personality disorder type person who is not just disruptive, but scary threatening. Imagine having to be a staff member or resident of that facility and having to live with a person who literally like can do what he wants, <clears throat> won't really be held accountable. He was eventually evicted. It just took months and months and months and months. And so it might be confusing to people on the outside why you could get some housing. It's move-in ready. It's literally furnished. There are empty units in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has a slight homeless problem. And they're just sitting there empty, and it's absolutely maddening. So you can go read about that if you want to get triggered. If you don't want to get triggered, you can just you know stick your head in the sand like that ostrich does. That's a that's a nice stance to take if you just don't want to deal with the shit. I worked dealing with the shit for a decade, and I continue covering the shit. And so I'm going to write about this shit, and I'm thanking you for listening to the shit. So <clears throat> continue going down if you want to um, understand more aspects of what I'm doing. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to take a sip of water again. You can read um, more and more and more. Um, you can also get some uh, more anecdotal stories, some insider perspective on the authorized camping site, how the narrative is breaking open, uh, and we're openly discussing the fact that human trafficking was happening within the authorized camping site. And then I got another great picture, another opportunity to use a picture of Sean Stevenson uh, pictured with Selma Hayek, and that was during the filming of the movie Dogma, scenes of which were filmed inside the church where Sean's dad preached. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Also, considering today, July 21st, is Sean's birthday. Um, Sean, of course, being the man that was assaulted inside the Pavarello Center and was removed from life support on January 5th, 2020 by the sheriff's office before they notified his family, which is why I say Sean was euthanized by the Missoula County Sheriff's Office, something I've been shut down at city council for discussing. So um, definitely take a, a look at that picture. The idea of narrative control is very important to me. And so uh, this is going to continue to be one of those those stories that I will go back to time and time again, because overall, with this plan to end homelessness, there will be money earmarked in the budget for a new plan. I have told city council, whether they want me to or not, I will be a part of that plan in some way. And part of that is emphasizing we need to discuss the death stories 
of people on the streets, not their lived experiences, their death experiences. We need to unpack and understand how unhoused, unsheltered people are dying in our community. I emphasize this because I think a lot, <laughs> a lot could be understood about this issue when you take a look at things like that. You know, just a suggestion, one that I'm going to make sure is actualized in any way possible. So, <clears throat> continuing on, am I a conspiracy theorist? Yeah, you could probably interpret some of my thinking as conspiratorial, especially when I say things like, <clears throat> does Missoula's International Coral Festival have a dark side? <clears throat> oh man, I always get phlegm in my throat. Of course, I think the answer to that question is yes, and I open with a picture of John Talbot, who passed away on December 16, 2021. He was 91 years old. He was the Missoulian publisher. He was a philanthropist, so, or daddy of Pete Talbot, who I used to be a co-blogger with at 4 and 20 Blackbirds. Well, John Talbot was deeply involved in the International Coral Festival, which kicked off, I believe, yesterday, the 19th. And so we've got a lot of people in town right now. Um, coming for this International Coral Festival. It was originally started in 1985. Mr. Talbot got involved in 1987. And as I was doing the research for this, this blog post, I realized, wow, 1987, very interesting year. Um, also the year the Finders were caught in Tallahassee, Florida. So the Finders were a very creepy group. Um, two men were busted at a playground, having six children in their possession, children that were dirty and could barely like function and you can read the details even wikipedia gives you some interesting context if you want to read more by following links at the blog post but 1987 also a a certain movie i watched recently which i'm not going to get into the details of i'm considering how if i'm going to write about it how i would do that um the movie was pretty intense but i have a i have a theory in terms of narrative control predictive programming when Looking at past movies with my new eyes, it's really fascinating some of the ideas that start bubbling up. So in the blog post, though, I throw out some ideas of how music and culture can be a sort of front for intelligence work, using Leonard Cohen as an example. Uh, Leonard Cohen, for people that are familiar, amazing songwriter, wrote uh, Hallelujah, a beautiful song. Well... Leonard Cohen is one of the, the songwriters, one of the performers that, that I've definitely appreciated. I've done his books of poetry. I have lots of his books, actually. Um, it is just so interesting to reconsider how these people were in places that, you know, like Ethiopia and Cuba in, in uh, Leonard Cohen's situation before revolutions kicked off. Really, Anne Diamond, a poet herself from Montreal, Canada, and a contemporary of Leonard Cohen, Anne Diamond is the person that puts it out there most explicitly, her perception of Leonard Cohen doing espionage work. Songs like Field Commander Cohen get pretty explicit. And of course, as an artist, you can say that's just art. Don't take it seriously. Don't take it literally. Well, hmm, maybe if you do take it a bit more seriously, some of these things that don't make a lot of sense start coming a bit into sharper focus, if you catch my drift. So check out more at the Zoom Cron website if you want to know more. Moving on, I added a second post um, because July 20th is the two-year anniversary of Rebecca Barsati being reported missing. Um, also, a article from the Missoulian 
Fear multiplied using uh, Lee Nelson's murder, brutal murder, and some other acts of violence towards homeless people um, to put out what I'm really seeing as a political article. The Missoulian pisses me off to no end in how they uh, control narratives, how they report on some things, how they do not report on other things. And so this post uh, just puts a quick little list of names out there with links to some of the writing I've done. So names like, of course, Sean Stevenson, Johnny Lee Perry, Joey Thompson, Stephen Gill, Jermaine Charlo, Shane Pelletier. Just a few names. I know I am forgetting a bunch. Moving on, we have Friday's post. So today, Friday, so I'm recording this uh, 8.30 to 9-ish in the morning on Friday, July 21st. So this is the day that Oppenheimer is coming out, Christopher Nolan's latest this is Sean Stevenson's birthday, and the post for today is titled On Rewatching the First Season of True Detective. That is right. It was a very timely reviewing, rewatching of True Detective, and you can read about that, including some of my uh, further conspiratorial thinking with Hunter Biden, who has been in the news quite a lot recently. Hunter Biden, who has a very interesting large tattoo on his back of the Finger Lakes. I don't know how else you can interpretate the interpret interpretate how else you can interpret the the marks on his back other than being of the Finger Lakes. And I include a very creepy, creepy cameo from Jim Carrey in the office where he explicitly says people disappear in the Finger Lakes as he's playing this weird cameo guy uh, trying to become one of the uh, I think he was interviewing for a manager position at in the office so um very interesting watching true detective having rust cole played by matthew mcconaughey who is actually being suggested as a possible replacement for kevin costner in the series yellowstone which i also have covered very closely since locations in missoula have been used exploited is probably the word i would use uh used in for that show and so matthew mcconaughey in, in the true detective guys really goes hard in trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And in that situation, he comes across a powerful family with ties into government and religion. Very, very, very interesting. Um, a sheriff is, is involved, a corrupt sheriff who steers away an investigation, um, away from a female victim. And ultimately, they finish what they started with the individual, but the serial killer, the individual serial killer in this situation, is put in a cultural context that is much more connected and networked to our society than the conventional idea of the serial killer. And so coming up next week, I think I'm going to be doing some writing. Uh, I've been reorganizing parts of my library. And so now my my sort of serial killer slash true crime section, I've tried to, to get a bunch of different books together that are are fit under this, this subject and topic. And uh, I'm going to be giving it some, some more perspective i think uh, dave mcgowan is the name that a lot of people are familiar with and come when it comes to broadening the idea of the serial killer so program to kill is his title i may be reading from that um i haven't figured out what i'm, I'm reading from specifically again this week but i will make some selections and there's definitely i think at least one maybe even the epilogue but there will be some stuff from program to kill i think i will read Dave McGowan makes the claim that these individual serial killers, some of these cases are just actually impossible that all of these deaths have, could be attributed to the individuals that ultimately were held accountable, um, usually charged and then sentenced for a bunch of murders. His claim is that there are more, his speculation, I, I should say, is that 
um, there is more going on to these serial killings. I think, and it's been a while since I've read it, um, read it sort of uh, front to back, but um, one of the things that comes up in this inquiry, generally speaking, is the Phoenix program. So in Vietnam, this very explicit targeted killing program, and then the idea of these people who were part of the Phoenix program coming home, and what do they do once they're back? Even the movie Lethal Weapon actually touches touches on that. Um, so very interesting stuff as we look at the intersection of movies and culture and then real life, what plays out on the real ground here in Zoomtown and where you might be. So I think that should wrap it up for the review of the week's posts. Coming up, I will have a book reading, maybe even two. And the song, oh yeah, there's going to be a song. The song, already written, already performed, recorded, ready to go. So... Um, next week, the posting might be a little light. I will still hold to the Monday through Friday posting, but I'm going to get out of town for a bit, uh, charge the batteries out in the woods the way you're supposed to when you're living in Montana. Thank you for tuning in. I've been your host, Travis Williams Skink Mateer. This is ZoomCron Week in Review. I appreciate all the support. Stay tuned. I'm going to keep it local. I'm going to keep it focused on what I think is important, and I appreciate it. Adios for now. All right, the first book selection I have chosen for this week is from Keeping the Peace, Police Reform in Montana, 1889 to 1918 by Robert A. Harvey. So I've read from this book previously. This is from Chapter 8, Moral Uplift and the Police, A Failure of Reform. In 1901, Montana Attorney General James Donovan wrote in a letter to all county attorneys that, contrary to state law, Nickel slot machines and peep scopes were operating in many Montana saloons. He warned, the law is clear, plain, and specific, and I desire to have you notify your sheriff, constable, and police officers to vigorously enforce the law. Donovan's letter no doubt pleased moral reformers, but those who supported such measures soon learned that compelling officers to enforce the law was one thing, and requiring them to enforce morality was another. Law enforcement officers found themselves buffeted between regulationists who wanted to control gambling, prostitution, and liquor, and moralists who wanted to eliminate these vices. Moralists led by clergymen, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, members of the Anti-Saloon League and Municipal Leagues, and sympathetic businessmen, argued that family life would improve when gambling and saloons were eliminated. Wives and children went without necessities as husbands and fathers squander their hard-earned pay paychecks in gin mills and gambling dens. Moreover, closure of, closure of bordellos, moralists argued, would uplift members of the community and force a return to traditional values of family and church. Some businessmen argued that wide-open vice hurt business in the community and discouraged economic investment from the East. <laughs> Clergymen asserted that vice bred crime and disorder. They pointed out that individuals who gambled, for example, eventually reached the county jail because of the urgent need of money to play the elusive game called poker. If gambling, prostitution, and saloons were eliminated, they concluded the crime rate would tumble. Finally, moralists believed that vice had a corrupting influence on the political process and on the police in particular. Hmm. They agreed with Carrie Nation, who, after a Kalispell policeman refused her request for a carriage from which she could address a crowd, told her audience that the police were a tool of saloon interests. <laughs> Regulationists, 
led by political leaders, community liberals, and conservative businessmen, believed that vice was part of Montana's frontier heritage and could not be eliminated. Regulationists were not of one mind regarding how to control vice. Some agreed with moralists that wide-open saloons and gambling hurt the community, and they fought for laws establishing closing hours. Other regulationists believed that the proper way to handle the problem was to levy high fines against or require licensed fees of vice entrepreneurs. These fees paid the cost of law enforcement and kept property taxes low. <laughs> Political leaders established special districts for saloons and houses for prostitution as a means of regulating these vices. Laissez-faire businessmen argued that bar owners, gamblers, and madams were business people who would not be told when and where to operate their trade. Conservatives believed the marketplace should dictate the number of vice establishments. Law enforcement officials were not in agreement on whether vice should be prohibited. Some sheriffs were prohibitionists and enforced liquor laws vigorously. Most law enforcement officers agreed that gambling and prostitution could not be eliminated. Moreover, law enforcement agencies had their own agendas. Police benefited from the taxes and license fees paid by vice entrepreneurs. Pressure to fight crime, police preferred to confine rowdy and lawless elements to vice districts. Finally, some officers had financial interests in vice, in vice enterprises, particularly bars. After statehood moralists alarmed at the amount of gambling obtained Alarmed at the amount of gambling, obtained laws outlawing games of chance. In 1895, anti-gambling advocates convinced the legislature to enact the state's first anti-gambling statute. The new law prohibited anyone from dealing, playing, or conducting any game of faro, monte, roulette, lanskentet, uh, then a bunch of other interesting names. Rondo, tan, fantan, stud horse poker, draw poker, craps, Seven and a half, 21, or any banking or percentage game played with cards, dice, or any device for money, checks, credit, or any representative value. Wow, that is some very comprehensive legislation. Convention, conviction was punishable by a fine of not less than 200, nor more than 1,000. Moralists were not pleased with what they perceived to be a light sentence. Mere fines, they suggested, would not deter gamblers. In 1897, the legislature increased the penalty for gambling to include imprisonment in the penitentiary, not to exceed five years and or a fine of not less than 500 nor more than 1,000. A weekly Yellowstone Journal editor complained that the penalty was too harsh and the juries would not convict. Without convic convictions, it was useless for the police to enforce the act. The editor of the Dillon Examiner also blamed the severe sanctions for the lack of enforcement. Citizens, he claimed, were reluctant to inform on gamblers, and even when they did, police refused to take action because the penalty might be imprisonment. The editor of the Kalispell Interlake echoed this concern, arguing that the penalty should be made less severe to obtain more convictions. The 1901 legislator acted a new, enacted a new anti-gambling law, but with a sharply reduced sentence. Gamblers were fined no less than 100, nor more than 1,000, and could not be incarcerated except for non-payment of their fines. The new legislation defined gambling as a misdemeanor and permitted police, with or without arrest, warrants, to break open doors of any house, room, or apartment where gambling was suspected. Now there was no excuse, <clears throat> reformers claimed, for citizens as well as authorities not to file complaints against gamblers. The new law allowed cities to enact ordinances and to collect fines. Penalties provided by city ordinances were much lower than those prescribed by state law. Dillon passed a gambling ordinance that provided a maximum penalty of $100.
Hamilton's law required a fine of not less than five, nor more than 25. Moralists feared that the fines were only a subterfuge for a licensing system. In some communities, their fears proved to be true. In 1905, Dillon instituted a monthly fine for gambling. Each gambler was limited to two games, poker and faro, and was fined $50 per game. The amount of money collected, $4,552.50 in 1905 and 2575 in 1906, added generously to the city's revenues. Moralists attempted to stop the licensing practice, quote, in January of 1906. In, oh, in January 1906, Dillon's mayor, Benjamin White, received a petition from the Ministerial Association and the Women's Christian Temperance Union requesting him to enforce gambling laws. Speaking before a large audience at the city council meeting, the Reverend S.D. Hooker argued that accepting fees from gamblers did not promote good citizenship or a proper regard for law enforcement. Mrs. A.C. Reif, accompanied by a number of other women, spoke on behalf of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and asked, How can we expect to bring up boys as law-abiding citizens and permit the law to be violated? Good point. Finally, Fidel Huber, a local Dillon businessman, told council members that gambling did not in any way help business. The mayor, after hearing the argument, stated that he opposed gambling, but in his opinion, it could not be stamped out and must be regulated. The mayor's opinion reflected the views of many citizens in these small towns who believed gambling should be licensed. The editor of the Kalispell Bee theorized that, although the, old law, although the old law making gambling a felony was unreasonable, a mere $200 fine would not prevent gaming. Licensed gambling would solve the problem, he contended. This is a longer quote. Unquestionably, it breeds crime, and it would be nothing but fairness that its damage in that direction should be offset as much as possible by a public tax, which should be so high that it will make tinhorn gambling impossible, and at the same time give to the state or county governments the revenue that now goes elsewhere. High licenses, and the higher the better, will prove a far more effective check upon gambling than the present law, or any law, that professes to pro prohibit it entirely. <clears throat> the Yellowstone Journal supported regulation of gambling, telling readers that money from gambling licenses would buy as much charity, hospitals, and public works as the cleanest money in the treasury. The debate over gambling in Kalispell illustrates how police could be caught between regulation and suppression. After enactment of the 1897 legislation, gambling was wide open. In 1899, a gambler in Kalispell boldly advertised that since gambling is allowed in Kalispell, I intend to put all kinds of games, including a brand new slot machine. The people furnish the money, and I will furnish the tools. The Anaconda Standard characterized Kalispell as getting to be, if not already, the greatest gambling town in the state. All kinds of games are running here at full tilt, and none are molested by the police officers. The town is wide open. In fact, everything is wide open. The variety beer joints, which are running here, calling themselves variety theaters, are fully equipped with women, box rustlers, and green goods, and green goods men, and boy charmers with their painted brazen faces. The hell are boy charmers? <coughs> The writer criticized the police force for seeming, quote, to be in sympathy with the great crowds of thugs and criminals that are now infesting the city. It is an everlasting disgrace to the decent element that they have such police officers who allow such things to go on in this community. Kalispell's local police, the Interlake, commenting on this description, admitted that, quote, <clears throat> it is little, if at all, overcolored. After enactment of the 1901 anti-gambling law, Kalispell moralists saw an opportunity to close down gambling. A group of churchmen and other anti-gambling advocates met and decided to circulate a petition calling upon Kalispell officials to stop gambling within the city. This was the opening round <clears throat> of a prolonged battle. The group presented their petition, signed by 433 people, to the city council, who referred to it 
who referred it to a subcommittee for study. All this sounds very familiar. The council, after examining the subcommittee's report, ordered the city attorney to draft an anti-gambling ordinance modeled after the state statute, but with reduced penalties to ensure the sympathy of juries. The new ordinance was enacted in April 1901 amid fears that it would not be enforced or would be used as a revenue collection device. Moralists were pleasantly surprised, however, when J.W. Johnson, the police chief, ordered all gambling in the city to stop. In August, the editor of the Interlake smugly announced that gambling in the city had ceased. His proclamation was much too premature. <clears throat> Mayor Sidney Logan, under pressure from the moralists, ordered his police in May 1902 to enforce all gambling laws strictly. Gambling continued unabated to the end of 1902, motivating the editor of the Kalispell Bee to suggest correctly that the mayor's closure edict was an effort to stop protests rather than gambling. The editor criticized the mayor, the county attorney, the police, and the county sheriff hmm, for their failure to enforce anti-gambling laws and hinted that all three were in, in the pay of gamblers. Caught between powerful moralists on the one hand and political benefactors on the other hand, the police were not going to enforce the law without consent from political leaders. Moralists realized that so long as police remained under the domination of local politicians who favored regulation, they could not be enlisted in the crusade to eliminate gambling. Moralists also understood that if the police and city continued to benefit economically from gambling, there was no incentive to eliminate the, eliminate the vice. To overcome these obstacles, anti-gambling advocates developed three strategies. First, they joined police reformers to remove police from partisan politics. Second, they urged the creation of a state sheriff or state police force to execute gambling laws. Finally, they eliminated financial incentives that discouraged cities from enforcing gambling laws. Interesting, huh? The first two strategies failed. The Montana Supreme Court emasculated the Metropolitan Police Act in its application to small towns, and the legislator refused to create a state police force. The third strategy was more successful. In 1907, the state legislator, led by Representative P.H. Griffin from Powell County, enacted a comprehensive anti-gambling law. The Griffin Act expanded the number of types of games that were illegal to play. The misdemeanor penalty was retained in the law, although a convicted gambler could receive up to one year in county jail. Law enforcement officers were again given authority to break and enter any private location to search for gamblers and gambling paraphernalia. More important, the law vacated all local ordinances and banned cities from passing any regulations governing gambling or gaming houses. This ban effectively prohibited local governments from using fines as a subterfuge to tax gamblers. Moralists were pleased with the new law, and the Whitefish pilot called the Griffin Act the greatest piece of moral legislation to be enacted by the legislature. So I'm going to go ahead and just pause it there for right now. That is an absolutely fascinating, fascinating section of Keeping the Peace, Police Reform in Montana from 1889 to 1918 by Robert A. Harvey. And that was from Chapter 8, Cleaning Up the City. Wow, that is some funny, funny stuff. Um, I'm sorry, no, Chapter 8 is called Moral Uplift and the Police, a Failure of Reform. So that is the first selection. I'm going to be reading now, a uh, apart from the epilogue of Dave McGowan's Programs to Kill. So as we are thinking about people in authority and how they enforce the law or don't enforce the law or... Let's say you're elected to be the leader of a country, and you do some atrocious shit. It gets you thinking just about what the law is and how us humans in our little societies actually enforce these laws. So I'm going to take a quick pause and come back with one more reading. This is the epilogue to Program to Gill by Dave McGowan. So stay tuned.
All right, here is the epilogue to Dave McGowan's program to kill the politics of serial murder. And it begins with a quote from Richard Ramirez, known as the Night Stalker. Quote, I need not look beyond this courtroom to see all the liars, the haters, the killers, the crooks, the paranoid cowards. We are all expendable for a cause. No one knows that better than those who kill for policy, clandestinely or openly, as do the governments of the world which kill in the name of God and country. Here is the epilogue. Jean Bedel Bokassa was, like all Western-supported third-world dictators, a fascist thug who allowed his country's rich natural resources to be ruthlessly exploited while his countrymen starved. Under his rule, the Central African Republic, the French satellite, was one of the 20 poorest countries in the world. Bokassa was reportedly orphaned at the age of six when his father was murdered and his mother allegedly committed suicide just a week later. At the age of 18, he joined the French colonial army and served throughout World War II. He remained in the army after the war and later served in the First Indochina War, a.k.a. Vietnam, and then in Algeria, two of the bloodiest and most brutal colonial occupations in recorded history. In 1961, Jean Bedel left the French army holding the rank of captain. A few years later, he was appointed by his cousin, President David Daco to head the army of the Central African Republic. Just one year after taking the post, he took control of the country from his cousin, Lieutenant Colonel Bokassa. Oh, I'm sorry. Lieutenant Colonel Bokassa assumed the presidency on January 1st, 1966, four months before the reputed commencement of the Age of Satan. So this is the epilogue. So um, obviously that's referring to the stuff previously in the book. By December 1977, Bokassa had decided that president was not a lofty enough title, so he declared himself Emperor Bokassa I of the rechristened Central African Empire. As the country's self-appointed dictator, he had a very close relationship with French President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. I'm, I'm sure I butchered that. The two leaders were frequently photographed together, and Giscard was reported to have several relatives in positions of influence in the Bokassa regime and within the empire's business community. In May 1979, it was reported that Bokassa had personally ordered the massacre of a hundred, more by some reports, school children. The children had been suffocated, stabbed, and beaten with nail-studded clubs. Some eyewitnesses to the carnage claimed that the emperor himself had not only personally killed nearly 40 of the victims, but had cannibalized them as well. The Bokassa regime, of course, denied the reports. The atrocity was confined I'm sorry, was confirmed through the Amnesty International, and in August 1979, a five-nation team assembled to investigate the incident determined that Emperor Bokassa was indeed personally responsible. Bokassa responded by ordering the execution of 40 witnesses who had offered testimony to the investigating board. The next month, Bokassa was overthrown and was in what was described as a coup. In truth, it was merely a quick facelift to ward off the popular uprising that was brewing in the wake of the revelations. The coup merely put Bokassa's cousin back in power. French troops were on hand to oversee the transition. Bokassa fled the country, taking with him hundreds of millions of dollars looted from the national treasury and ultimately settled in France. He had, however, left a few things behind. As the Associated Press later reported, prosecutors at his trial noted Bokassa's old palace was filled with evidence of atrocities, including the frozen body of a schoolteacher hanging on a freezer hook and mounds of human flesh prepared for roasting. Damn. Other evidence of atrocities included, according to author Janet Street Porter, a Dahmer-esque refrigerator full of butchered human remains in a crocodile pond on the palace grounds that contained the partial remains of some 40 additional bodies. Bokassa's former cook testified at trial that he had regularly served up dishes prepared from human flesh and that Bokassa had consumed them with relish. 
The Associated Press reported that Picasso enjoyed serving up his critics and political enemies at state dinners, honoring visiting dignitaries and heads of state. Holy shit. It has been claimed that at Picasso's coronation as emperor, an ostentatious affair financed by the French government to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, guests unknowingly dined on human flesh. Wow. After the eight years of exile, Vocasa returned to his homeland in 1987. Well, there's that number again. Despite the fact that he had been sentenced to death in absentia, <laughs> despite the fact he had been sentenced to death in absentia, okay, he was arrested, tried, convicted, and once again sentenced to death, but the sentence was shortly thereafter commuted to a 20-year prison sentence. In 1993, Bokasa was granted amnesty, and he walked away a free man, returning to his home village of Berengo. On November 3, 1996, he died of a heart attack at the age of 75 and was given an official state funeral, befitting a former president. How then are we to remember Jean Bedel Bokasa as a respected head of state or as a cannibalistic serial killer? Or is there any difference? Oh my god. That was the extremely fucked up epilogue to Programmed to Kill, The Politics of Serial Murder by Dave McGowan. And before that, we read uh, from Chapter 8 of Keeping the Peace, Police Reform in Montana, 1889-1918. I hope you enjoyed those two reading selections. Thanks for tuning in to ZoomCron Week in Review. I review the weekly headlines put out at ZoomCron.com. Written by me, Travis Williams Skink Mateer. Then I talk about it and read a couple excerpts from some interesting books pulled from my personal library here at the Brick and Book Media Nook. Thanks for tuning in. I will be back next week and I'll be writing up lots of stuff, including at some point next week um, my reaction and perceptions of the new Christopher Nolan movie Oppenheimer, which I saw last night. So I'm still processing all the interesting information. Now, here you go. Here's a ukulele song to wrap up this episode. Stay tuned for more. Here's the song for the week. I hope you enjoy it. A clown in my town with the honky-honk nose. Toots and refute about how boogers grow. Magical, tactical, count to three. Then pop like a leprechaun, you can't catch me. Motorboating cornrows loop from a tube. Hot pocket, late night, bad attitude. So I burned rubber, blew out an eye. Cornbread, hand-fed, cry, baby, cry. Back in the dish pit, rubber to my chest. Hot garbage daydream, hint of lemon zest. Name of the business, ancient foretold. With hookers in blow, you can hit the silk road. Lock up the dumpster, crush up the chunks. And head for the hills to fry up the funk. Only special fish can swim this way Up toward the sun, but not to filet Cause I'm not your breakfast, I'm not your lunch Town full of clowns, adios punks When I get back, you better prepare City council hemorrhoids, my rollerblade flare Maybe you should listen, maybe you should act How are they dying? Give me the facts Maybe stop groping around in the dark Find better heads with functioning hearts Can you do that? Cause if you don't, it's gonna get bad not California, 
more like Baghdad. Do we have it coming? I don't know, friend. All that I know is death's not the end. I gotta go now, it's sure been fun. Oppenheimer showing how many sons. If you remember only one thing, light is eternal, so sing, baby, sing. Cause if you don't, it's gonna get bad. Not California, more like Baghdad. Do we have it coming? I don't know, friend. All that I know is that's not the end. I gotta go now, it's sure been fun. Oppenheimer showing how many sons. If you don't remember only one thing, light is eternal. So sing, baby, sing. Sing, 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 baby, sing. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back next week with more.